welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Doxodeo Hatfield, let's open up our Bibles very specifically to John chapter 7, verse 53. John 7, 53. So as we're preaching through the book of John, we've been saying week after week that this book, this gospel according to John, has such a capacity to not only introduce people, non-Christians, to Jesus, His truth, His grace, His beauty, who He is, but also reintroduce, reinvigorate Christians to who Jesus is. It's a powerful book. And therefore, we're just saying the early church simply had this call, come and see. Come and see him for yourself. Experience him for yourself. And as he transforms you, become someone who invites others to come and see. So I can see by the faces that many of you have found John 7 verse 53 there. Uh-oh. This is a challenge. What happened? 52, and then suddenly it just skips. Your Bible and my Bible, most probably in English, says the following, that the earliest Greek manuscripts did not include chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. Now, friends, this is why we preach through books of the Bible, that we don't just stick to the stuff that's easy and simple, but that we have to wrestle with things that I definitely do not want to preach about. So I have grace today because... I don't know if you see this, but we are saying, come and see, experience Jesus. But here's the trick. If you, if you think about it, how can you see and experience someone who no longer lives? He's not here today. So part of it is we're saying, I believe the Holy Spirit makes the text, the scriptures about Jesus come alive in your heart. You need to read about him to know him. But it seems when I see stuff like this in the Bible, maybe you've never seen it, you're like, what the heck is going on here? If I see stuff like this, suddenly I'm shaken. And I'm like, but how can I trust the Jesus of the Bible if the Bible that this Jesus is in is not trustworthy? We've been saying all throughout the series, we want to wrestle with issues that both Christians and non-Christians wrestle with. Man, here's an issue. Can I even trust the New Testament? So let's just read this text as you do in the Bible. I'll skip to verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. And then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? And they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. But Jesus OG here, stooped down and started just writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Mic drop moment. Rock drop. And then he stooped down again and he continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. They know what's happening here. And only he was left. 
with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Well, neither do I condemn you. So go and from now on, do not sin anymore. What a powerful story. (laughs) What a powerful moment. Many of you, if you're not even a Christian, you know, you've heard of this story. And yet in most of your Bibles, it has this either in a bracket or in a footnote saying that this should not actually be in the book of John. Why? Because they're saying that they don't find this section of John in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, they think it was added centuries later. So let me give you examples. Don Carson, he's one of the best Testament, New Testament scholars in the world. He says, I quote, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. Bruce Metzger, one of the most famous New Testament scholars, died in 2002. He says, I quote, the evidence against this text is overwhelming. Leon Morris says, textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. Now think about this, friends. All these men that I just, and countless other men and women, scholars, pastors, all of them are Christian. They love Jesus. They love the church. They've staked their whole life on this man. And yet they say, this does not belong in the book of John. And so we like, okay, so what now? The whole Bible, it's a mess. It's all a farce. You can't believe any of it. It's all a joke. How can you even know Jesus? Why did the chicken cross the road? Why is the petrol price so high? All these questions that we just don't have answers for, isn't it? The whole thing, it just feels like the whole thing's tumbling down. If this kind of stuff happens under my nose, then man, how can you trust the Bible? I want to say, after many years of study myself, I think they are right. So what do we do? How do we wrestle with a Jesus in a text if we're not sure about the text that points to the Jesus? So we're going to do just two things. And man, we've in the series, we've spoken about Jesus connected to your sexuality and your business and your finance and your purpose and hope and all these things. Today, is a, it's up here, friends. We're going to have to put our thinking caps on for the majority of the sermon. And at the end, I'm going to ask you to open up your heart very wide. So stick with me. This is so important. We are teaching ourselves to take our faith seriously. So just two questions today. The issue that confronts all non-Christians and Christians The first is this, you need to wrestle with the text. So let me give you objections, not all of them, but a couple of potent ones that people maybe in the church here wrestle with in their own hearts or people outside of the church say, this is why I can't take this Christian Jesus stuff seriously. First objection, you know, the Bible's been copied so many times. We have no idea what the original documents even said. Now, let me introduce you to a a literary science called textual criticism. Very fancy sounding words. And what these guys do, it's a branch of Bible scholar work, and they are tasked with reconstructing the texts of ancient works as accurately as possible. Now, why is that necessary? Because, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek originally, but none of those papyri and things that they wrote on, none of that stuff can survive for two, three, five thousand years. So we don't have the original texts of the Bible that these teams of authors wrote on. And so what these textual critics have to do, they're not criticizing, it means they are scrutinizing in the best possible way the text of all ancient literature. 
what they need to do is they need to apply a whole bunch of techniques to say, how then will we find out what the Bible actually originally said? Now, I'll give you a couple of things that they do. One of them is that they say, how many manuscript copies? So a manuscript is just a copy of the original. But I'll keep on saying manuscript copies just to keep us on the same page. They say, how many manuscript copies do we have of the original? Because the more copies we have of the original, the more we can compare all these copies with one another and get back to what the original said. Make sense? So let me give you an example. I have a box full of letters that Shay and I wrote to one another when we were in high school. Back when you wrote letters. Yeah, that's exactly what I was hoping for. Now, imagine that I take one of my prized letters to Shay and I call 10 of you into the church afterwards and I say, now sit at a table, each of you. Here is my letter, one by one. I'm asking you to write by hand as accurately and perfectly as you can every word, word for word, perfectly as you can. And then I'm asking you to go and grab 10 more people from the church, each of you, and ask them to do the same perfectly as you can, word for word, write it down by hand. Now we have the original, I'm holding it, it still smells nice, and we have a hundred manuscript copies of the original. Now the worst happens, I burn my original that I wrote to my wife, and she's deeply disappointed, as you can see. Aww. But here's the issue, it doesn't matter, because we have a hundred copies of that original, and we can easily reconstruct what we had. And even if some minor issues happened in five of them, you, you misspelled something, you spelled my name with a J instead of something else, um, it's fine. Or you left out something big, you left out a whole sentence or a word. It's okay, because we have 95 other copies that we can use to get back to my original letter. So what's the point? The more, the better. When it comes to manuscript copies. Now, let me give you an example these textual critics, they look at all the ancient works, everything we know about people like Julius Caesar and the ancient wars and the Gauls and all these people. We watched Asterix and Obelix with our kids the other day. All of that comes from this textual criticism world. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of some of the well and most trusted sources of ancient wisdom. So Tacitus, he was probably the most impressive ancient historian of all. He writes in his histories and annals, and we have Copies of his original. Of course, we don't have the originals like the New Testament. We have two full copies of his original works, even today. History of uh, Thucydides. He writes about the Spartans and the Athens. We have eight existing copies, even today, of his original. The Roman history collection, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. I'm listening to a podcast on this at the moment. So amazing. Caesar writes. And we today have 10 existing manuscript copies of his original work. And then, for example, Livy's Roman history, super famous, and we have a massive 20 original separate copies of this man's original work through whom you now can reconstruct the original. Now, how does the New Testament compare to some of the greatest ancient historical work in history? And I want to say to you that scholars will say nothing touches the New Testament, because we do not have two or eight or even 20. We have 25,000 existing manuscripts, copies of the original fragments 
of the New Testament. So according to the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Münster, Germany, the Germans can do two things. They build good cars and they can count things to precision. And so they've got the greatest database of all these copies in the world. And they say today, and we are discovering one, uh, you know, a couple of these every month and year as we go in more caves and in more issues, you know, digs, archaeological digs, we're finding even more as we go. And they say we have today more than 25,000. We have about 5,000 in the Greek language, more than 10,000 in Latin. We have between five and 10,000 in other languages, such as Coptic and Syriac and Arabic and Hebrew and Armenian and Slavonic and Georgian Gothic and, you know, Afrikaans, some sure thrown in there somewhere. They have 25,000 copies. And guess this, just think about this. This was done by hand. All of this, all 25,000, this was before Gutenberg invented the printing press as a Christian in 1440 to spread the Bible. Now, properly, this was by hand. And even crazier. So just think about this. The average classical work, Caesar, the Gallic Wars, all these things, if you stack all of their copies on top of one another, you will get a stack about 1.2 meters high, about as high as this podium, this music stand of mine. If you were to stack all the manuscript copies of the New Testament on top of one another, you would have a stack that's two kilometers high. So think about the highest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa, 868 meters. You can have almost two and a half Burj Khalifas of just manuscript copies of the New Testament. Nothing touches in ancient text the New Testament. And here's something even crazier. Just think about this for a moment. In the early church, a couple of months to a couple of years after the life of Jesus, you have these church fathers and mothers. They start writing sermons and songs and commentaries on the early works. And let's say the worst thing happens. We magic wand all 25,000 out of existence. We do a, a snap of the finger like Thanos would do. And all 25,000 just gone. It wouldn't matter. Because we have more than a million quotes from just the early fathers, and we can reconstruct the entire New Testament from just the quotes of the early church of the New Testament. Friends, this is what a God does when he is serious about getting his word of the life of Jesus into the hands of his people. Okay, but second objection, okay, but there are thousands, yes, maybe you have the text as it was, but there are thousands of mistakes and differences between all these manuscript copies. So if you go onto a website like Reddit, you'll often find very excited teenager atheists, and I'm not, I've been there and I'm there often, but they will say something like this, and I've read Bart Ehrman's books, and he says he's an atheist New Testament scholar, and in his book, Most Quoting Jesus, he has this famous stat. You often see these, these uh, infographics made of it, that there are more than 400,000 mistakes and discrepancies between all these things, and this shakes young people to the core. How can you trust this Jesus if you can't even trust what is written about him? But here's the issue. Though I respect Ehrman, I think he's being very cheeky here. Because he's not actually referring to 400,000 actual instances of mistakes. What he's saying is every single time you find two copies that disagree. So in my letter, once again, we just have two copies. I just got two of you. Now, one sentence is in the one, but not in the other. How will you know what the original said? You can't. But if someone now copied that one over 30 times without that mistake, he does not count that as one mistake, just copied 30 times. He, he counts it as 30 mistakes. So yes, if we have 25,000 copies of something and some things are now copied over, 
Yes, we don't have 400,000 mistakes and the greatest, more than 90% of these so-called mistakes are just spelling errors. Are just things where one word is just swapped out with the other one. Where something is capitalized and it shouldn't be. These are not the kinds of things that people think they are. And this is so crucial, friends. We think this threatens the New Testament and its integrity, but it does the opposite. Because if I have 100 copies of my letter and we discover five genuine issues, the reason we can get back to the original is because we can see the issues. Imagine you had a perfect carbon copy, a hundred of them, a thousand of my letter. You would think something's going on here. This is weird. No one can write this perfectly. But it's because we have these minor issues that we can say, man, this is true. We find them everywhere in all these languages and they come back to exactly the same thing. And here are the two important things. I know this is a bit technical today, but just if you take two things away from today, just hear this. The number one thing is this. There is not a single. There are maybe two big passages in the New Testament that are really challenging. So this one and the end of Mark. But here is what you need to know. Even with every single challenging text in the New Testament, there is not a single, and this every single atheist and Christian scholar will agree with. There is not a single Christian doctrine or belief about Jesus that is challenged by any of these. Our Christian faith do not rest even in the least on any of these challenging texts. And secondly, this is important. These discoveries are not made because the church is locking it up somewhere. You know, maybe the Roman Catholic Church somewhere overseas, they've got like this big vault and all these issues have been discovered and people are breaking in. And it's these brave atheists saying, we found you, church. No, these are Christian scholars saying we want to have the highest level of excellence with our faith. If we're going to take faith seriously, as we discover things as they go on, we will voice it. It's in your Bible that it says, as we've discovered many more manuscripts, we don't think this John passage should be in there. This is the Christian church saying we are going to take our Jesus as seriously as you possibly can. And that's why religions like Islam and and Maybe, you know, I'm trying to think of a whole bunch of other ones. Most of them, go and do your own research. They do not have this level of historical veracity. The New Testament is in a league of its own. So just back to John for a moment. Let's summarize. Why do some of these scholars then say that this text should not be included? Let me give you a couple of examples. The first, the story is missing from all these Greek manuscripts in John before the 5th century. So in the 400s, for the first time, you see the story appearing in these manuscripts. All the earliest church fathers that we just spoke about, they leave out this passage and they just skip as they sing and comment and write about this text. They just skip from before to write after it. And in fact, if you read it, even in English, we don't have to understand Greek to even see this. It just flows so much better. You'll see it just flows from the one to the other. The story feels a bit awkwardly squished in there. And lastly, they will say that this text, more than anything else in John, it doesn't have the style and the heart, the language, the vocabulary of John. It feels a bit alien to the text. Now, is that an issue? It kind of sounds like it, but here's the reality. It's actually the opposite. Because once again, imagine that was my letter to Shay. Here's a whole section in the one. We just have two copies. My original's gone. Now the one has the sentence and the other one doesn't. What are we going to do? But luckily, we have 25,000 over 2,000 years. 
So we can say the very fact that we have seen this in some manuscripts, but in the earliest and best ones, it's not there. We can say as Christians, this is not evidence against the New Testament's accuracy. This is evidence for the New Testament's accuracy. We can trust the process that God has used. So should I think, oh no, this is true, so it's all up for grabs. It's all nonsense. The whole card house falls apart. The whole Christian thing's a conspiracy. Jesus probably didn't even live. People say stuff like that all the time. No, we can actually say, no, this is a reason to worship God. This is a reason to trust in God because the transmission of this text over 2,000 years has had the utmost care. Scholars say there's nothing that touches the New Testament. So maybe last objection. Okay, but I just think the actual happenings themselves, the stories of Jesus, they were just made up. So yeah, the text is one thing, but I don't think any of it actually happened. I think the stories are made up. Okay, so let me introduce you to one or two other things textual critics have to do. So yes, one thing is how many copies do we have? One other thing is how long did it take from the event happening to the first writing, recording of the event. So if I'm writing about my breakfast from t- this morning, I think that's like a decent space to know what happened there. But if I'm writing about something that happened in the 1400s, if I'm doing it today, man, I'm going to have to do my history very seriously because it's very far away from me. So it's more accurate the closer we can get to the recording of the event to the event. So like, once again, let me give you an example. All those guys I mentioned earlier, Julius Caesar and... Herodotus, all these guys, all of them are writing basically 400 to 1,500 years after the event. So the events happen 400 years past to 1,500 years past, and then they start writing about it. And scholars will say, that sounds to you crazy, but it's not. These guys were ace historians. They say we can trust what these men wrote. Okay, so what about the New Testament? The New Testament was written as early as 15 to 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the letters of Paul. And even the most staunch and liberal and atheist scholar will say that the the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written between 30 to 80 years after the life of Jesus himself. Think about this. Not 800 years, not 900 years, not 400 years, but 30 years to 50 years. So let me give you one just crazy, crazy thing. If you want to highlight this in your Bible, this is super powerful. 1 Corinthians 15. You know what a creed is? A creed is something that you recite as a statement of faith, almost like our vision statement that we do every week. And these guys are so clever as they look at the Bible and they realize there are sections of the New Testament that Paul or someone writing to one of the churches right after the death of Jesus, he's writing to these people and he's not just writing from memory or inspiration, he's writing a block of something that people are singing, are reciting, something that's become a bit of a a saying amongst the people. And this, once again, you can look at any scholar, atheist, Jewish, agnostic, doesn't matter, Christian, they will tell you that this section, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I passed unto you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to, to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. He says this was something that the church would stand up within those, those first seasons and they would just recite it. And the most hardened scholar will say, this is not 800 years, 600. This is a couple of weeks or months after the death of Jesus. He's reciting something for the Corinthians that they all know. If I said, guys, let's stand up 
and say our creed together, within a couple of months, the church would know this. Friends, there is nothing like this in ancient history. Well, maybe someone says, yeah, but I think they made up the story so they could push their own agendas, that they can have power, the early church, power-hungry people. Friends, just think about this. If you're going to make up stories about miracles and events, you have to wait till the people who witnessed them have died. Otherwise, those, and there are many, who do not like your cause, they will come and call you on your nonsense. Guys, yesterday, alien ship appeared over the whole Pretoria. And everyone says, no, it didn't. <laughs> if I wait a thousand years, maybe I can make that claim. So what's happening here? Listen to what happens. Instead of people writing hundreds of years later, there are so many facts like this. But let me give you one. The, the gospel authors actually write names of people to great accuracy. So Simon was a very common name. What does Mark, for instance, do? Mark 15 verse 21, speaking about Jesus on his way to be crucified, it says, Simon of Cyrene was carrying the cross of Jesus, and it says he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. What is Mark saying? He's saying with confidence, these people are alive. You can go and speak to them yourselves. His earliest audience would have known these people, and he says, I have such confidence in what happened here is his mom and his dad or his, his siblings. You can go to these people and you can speak to them yourself. Friends, if you were making up stories to win, you know, the acclaim of the people, why would you make your hero look so weak so often? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is so stressed that he's, he's sweating blood. On the cross, it seems that he's crying out that his father has forsaken him. Why would you make that up? If you are making this up for personal gain, why would you have women who had so little standing in the ancient Near East that could not even testify in a court of law at that point in Jewish culture? Why would you make them the first people that see Jesus? <laughs> that's not helping you. That's hurting you. Why would you make the leaders of the early church look so foolish so often? How often does Peter, the rock of the church, look like a fool? If you're making this stuff up, man, you need to pick up the pace. Unless it actually happened. Unless it actually happened. Maybe a last one. The textual critics will say, well, one other thing we can look at is what's the gap in time between the writing, now I'm recording this event that happened, and the first copies? How long do we have a gap between now we have the writing and the first copies appearing? Now, once again, let me just give you a couple of examples. Pliny the Elder, one of the first Roman encyclopedias, his first manuscript appears 700 years. We discover the first one after writing. Or how about Josephus, famous Jewish history on war and politics? His first manuscript, here's the original, appears 800 years after writing. Herodotus, Greco-Persian Wars, the first manuscript appears 1,500 years after the writing. And these are ace historians that people trust. And let me give you one example. There's a papyrus, piece of papyrus called P52. And it's in the book of John. And you can go and look at it today, if you maybe have that up for us for a second. That's the actual thing right there. You can go and look at it in the museum. And this was found in 1920. So once again, you think the further we get away from the Bible's events, the, the, the less we know, right? No. The further we get, the more we investigate, the better we know. The more we understand the culture, the more evidence we're getting. This is in 1920. This is 1,900 years after the life of Jesus. And we find a little scrap of John. And on this, I'm sure you guys can read it, of course, um, but on this little scrap, it's John. It's a piece of John 18 on the front and the back. And again, 
Get the most hardcore atheist scholar and they will say, this dates to not 700, 800, to within 100 years of the writing. So in other words, they are writing. And within just a couple of decades, you already have the first copies of the writing. Friends, there is nothing that touches the New Testament. So lastly then, one of the issues that every Christian and non-Christian needs to wrestle with is you need to wrestle with the text. But here's the second thing we all need to wrestle with. I believe every person in Twane needs to wrestle with. You need to wrestle with the man of the text. You need to wrestle with the man that's in this text. So here's the beautiful thing for those who, the diehard John 8. It's like, you can't lose the story, guys. It's so beautiful. Here is the beautiful thing. Many scholars, can't say most, but many, including all those I quoted at the beginning, Metzger, Carson, all of them, they believe that this event actually happened. They believe that this is an event that happened in the life of Jesus. It was passed along orally for many years, and eventually someone knowing about it just entered it in. He says this has all the hallmarks of what happened in the life of Jesus, but we have such a high level of excellence, we're not going to say that it was in the earliest manuscripts. But guess what? We absolutely believe that this Event, Jesus and this woman caught in adultery. They think it actually happened. So just read this part with me again. Verse 6, it says, They asked this to trap him. These people cared nothing for this woman. They wanted to get Jesus. So that my, they might have evidence to accuse him. And what does Jesus say? The one without sin among you, you throw the stone there. And when they heard this, they left one by one. And here is where every person in Twane will one day find themselves. Only one was left with the woman in the center. Somewhere it's going to be you and Jesus. And all those accusing you, they will have to step aside and you will stand in front of him. And maybe that to you sounds very scary because this man made big claims. He didn't just say, I start a religion. I give good teaching. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I don't speak about some dead religious figure. I speak about a father who pursues those who are broken, lost, and hopeless. And what will that moment feel like? Listen to what he says to her. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And so he answered, well, neither do I condemn you. Jesus did not come. God did not come to this world in the person of Jesus to condemn us. We are condemned. Friends, you don't know me well enough, but I know me well enough to know that you can have everything you ever wanted, and yet you will stand in a place of absolute hopelessness somewhere in your life. You will look in the mirror and say, I am condemned. Jesus says, I don't come to condemn you. I come to save you. And I'm not asking you to wash yourself, fix yourself, present yourself. And then once you have done away with your sin, now you come to me. He says, now, now that you have seen me, believe in me, trust in me, my work, my finished work on the cross. Now go and sin no more because your sin has been dealt with. I do not condemn you because I will be condemned for you. I don't come to condemn. I come to save, restore, redeem, and renew. Put your trust in me. So just to end off, I think about biographies and the nature of what a biography is. Think about the long walk to freedom, Nelson Mandela. Think about born a crime, 
Um, think about these biographies of famous people you've read. A biography can't literally give you every single thing someone has done. That's <laughs> so impractical. So January 6, 2022, 6 o'clock, he got out of bed. He put his left foot in his pantoffle, and he put his right foot in his pantoffle. No, that's impractical. You can't do that. You have to give the big flow of this person's life. Now listen to what John, we're going to get to this in the next term. John 21 verse 25, he says this about the life of Jesus. There are also many other things, maybe like this thing, that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that we would have to write. Jesus put his left foot in his moccasin and his right foot in his, he says, no man, he did many good things. Couldn't give you all of them, but this is what he says. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus, is he a good man? No, that he is the Messiah, that he's the son of God, that you can trust him and that by believing in him, if he is who he says he is, you need to take all of your allegiance, hope, trust, emotion, and faith and turn it to him and receive life. So there's a guy called Mark Clark. He's a Canadian, and he was a wild man. I love his story. Crazy, crazy man. Crazy trauma in his life. Just a wild, wild boar of a man. And today he's a pastor of one of the biggest churches in Canada. And in one of the most secular areas of our world, this pastor, they are seeing Hundreds, if not thousands, of young people getting baptized every year. And just listen to, just close your eyes if you need to, for, just listen to a part of his story. He says, he's writing about himself. He says, as a young man, I believed in Christ before I even entered a church. My encounter with God wasn't primarily with Christians or a church at all. It was with the Bible itself. I would sit at a local park or out in the front of my high school. I would be smoking a half pack of cigarettes and devouring the Bible. I read the stories of Jesus and his teachings and took them to heart. And over time, faith grew within me. I started to believe and to change. I moved from stealing cars and throwing rocks through people's windows and doing drugs to becoming a 17-year-old who loved God and was lit on fire to change the world. Why? Because I took the teachings of Jesus to heart and believed that he had died to liberate me from myself so that I could live for him. I found myself praying for people as they face their own difficulties in life. I saw young people around me give their lives to Christ. I was living in a new mode of existence, a different level of perspective, influence, joy. It was the Bible itself or God through it. The word behind the word was changing me. This is the power of the scriptures. They speak and if we will listen and heed them and let them take us over, they will transform us forever. Friends, the whole focus of the written word is the living word. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to move us from historical trust to personal trust. From historical faith to saving Friends, John, with everything in him, 
1,900 and something years ago is writing and he's saying, this man, this man changed my life. And he will do the same for you. Come and see. If you are depressed and hurting and broken today, if you have everything you've ever wanted and yet you feel empty, come and see him. And if a friend, colleague, or family member is wrestling with faith, with purpose, with life, don't worry about all the other things now. Just invite them to say, let's open up this New Testament. Let's open up the words and the deeds of Jesus and just come and see. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that we would be a church who take our faith so seriously, but that we would take you even more seriously. Jesus, come and show us, like you did with this woman caught in adultery, that you take sin so seriously, God, that you died for it, and yet you treat us in that with grace and truth. I pray for any person here sitting here this morning, I pray, God, that they would abandon themselves and old religion and they would cling in joy and faith to you. May the, the Jesus of the written word, Jesus, may you become the life in me, in all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.